I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. You'll find that on page 921 in your pew Bibles. We're going to look at the entirety of the chapter this morning. Typically, whenever preachers preach from the book of Jonah, you're easily able to do one chapter a sermon. And so you can get through the book of Jonah in about a month because there's only four chapters, but we've been taking this one month at a time. So here we are, month four, in the month of May, finishing out with the book of Jonah. And maybe just to whet your appetite a little bit, I hope to, Lord willing, uh, after this series, continue on into a series on the book of Daniel. Uh, I figured, you know, Reverend Zorhoff kicked us off with Daniel chapter one, and so I figured why not finish off with the next 11 chapters once a month. So we'll see where that takes us. Uh, perhaps, who knows, maybe into the next uh, 11 months. We'll, we'll see about that. Um, but here we are in Jonah chapter 4. We're going to learn a little bit this morning about Jonah's anger and the Lord's compassion. We're going to learn about the dangers of forgetting grace, but the good news alongside that, how God himself does not forget grace. Hear now the word of the Lord, Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, that is Nineveh, and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you open our eyes and our ears to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I titled this message, Forgetting Grace. And typically, uh, my practice is whenever I'm preparing for a message, I just kind of go on Google and type in random words and just kind of see what some sort of things would pop up. Uh, And as I was doing some word searching on Google and preparing this message, 
I stumbled upon an article titled, The Grace of Forgetting. Uh, it was an article published in a magazine, I, I believe it's a magazine, whether in print or online, um, that provides information to caregivers to help them care for the frail loved ones in the form of stories and advertisements. That's written out in their mission statement. And what this particular article that I found, uh, what this article was about, while not being uh, cavalier at all about the tragedy of memory loss as a disease, but what the article was articulating was the hidden uh, blessings of memory loss. For example, says the author, Consider Estelle. Estelle had a falling out with her sister 30 years ago, and they had barely spoken since. They end up in the same nursing home uh, because the family wanted the convenience. And although Estelle does not recognize her sister, they begin again and reestablish a relationship and then a good friendship. They play cards every day, and the sister and she chat amiably. While the falling out cannot be erased, they can part this life as friends, and the families can mend. And then the author throws some uh, rather uh, interesting quotes from some interesting people in there, uh, such as, Blessed are the forgetful, for they get the better even of their blunders. That's Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, to be able to forget means sanity. That's Jack London. And then the author ends the article with these very interesting words. It is the forgetful among us that teach the most about love and forgiveness. We all have something to learn from these people. Now, I couldn't help but in some bizarre way think of our guy Jonah this morning in that last sentence. Jonah, in our chapter here this morning, is a forgetful one. He forgets God's grace and mercy, willingly and stubbornly, it appears. And ironically, it's in his forgetfulness where we see this account of God's love and grace. It is the forgetful among us that teach the most about love and forgiveness. I thought that was interesting. Like the Apostle John uh, would write hundreds of years later, Jonah seems to have forgotten his first love. And so can we. Forgetting God's grace and mercy shown to us, we neglect to then show that to others, harboring judgment and resentment instead. And the only way to recover from this folly that may appear in our lives is to remember God's grace. And so, very simply, that's the theme that we'll consider this morning. You can follow along on your bullets and insert as well of, of a sermon outline. Our theme this morning, because God has shown us grace and mercy, we then must display grace and mercy to those around us. We'll see first, though, how Jonah forgets grace, and then we'll see how God reminds Jonah of grace and how we apply what we read here to our lives today. <clears throat> First, let's see how Jonah forgets grace, verses 1 through 4, helpful with this. Uh, we read in verse 1 there that Jonah was displeased exceedingly, and he was very angry. Well, displeased exceedingly and angry at what? I suppose I could have read that section of Scripture as we read uh, together. I bring your attention to the verse prior that we looked at a few weeks ago, chapter 3, 
verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, repenting of their sins, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then right into chapter 4, but it, what God just did, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. We have some very uh, interesting Hebrew wordplay going on here as the pagan Ninevites turned from evil and God relented of disaster. That Hebrew word disaster is ra'ah. Jonah himself, because of this, is now exceedingly angry or displeased, which is also the Hebrew word ra'ah. Literally, in the Hebrew there, it was evil to Jonah as a great wrong. Jonah, the one who quite literally was rescued by divine grace and mercy a couple chapters prior, extended forgiveness by the Lord, now has the audacity to express anger against the Lord for exhibiting those very attributes towards other sinners. And he prayed to the Lord. And here is where we're going to learn the real reason why Jonah abandoned his calling for his refusal to witness to the Ninevites in the first place. Verses 2 through 3. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Notice these attributes of God in Jonah's prayer. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. And yet how different is this prayer from the one that he prayed before? While suffering in the sea, he beseeched the Lord's face. He was shown grace and mercy in his rescue. But this is a grace and a mercy that he then subsequently finds appalling when it's bestowed upon others. Jonah, though, actually speaks truths here about God's gracious character. He knows it to be true. And it is abhorrent to him. He knows it to be true, but he abhors that truth. It was these awesome attributes of God displayed unto him, but he does not want them displayed unto the Ninevites. And yet deep down, he knows the Lord will relent of disaster. How? How does he know this? Not only because of, of course, what happened to him, but he would have known his history. He would have known his ancestral family history. Because his ancestors, the Israelites of Mount Sinai, experienced God's grace in the desert when they, as a whole corporate body, just blatantly sinned before God. These words that Jonah prays are actually words that Moses himself used to describe the Lord after Israel's grievous sin in erecting the golden calf. When God saw what the Israelites were doing, he said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you, Moses himself. But Moses implored the Lord. 
his God. And he said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster. Where does that language sound familiar? Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That's Exodus 32, 9-14. And after that event took place, in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We see that similar language here in Jonah's prayer in chapter 4. But it's these attributes, these characteristics of God that Jonah wants to just hoard for himself. One commentator describes it this way, when the Lord shows this same mercy and grace to others, Jonah is filled not with praise, but a discouraged anger that burns so deeply that he wants to die. If God is going to forgive people who Jonah thinks are too wicked to deserve it, Jonah does not want to live in such a world. It's like he's saying, over my dead body, which is his reaction to God's grace. In other words, his vehement reaction to God's grace is his practical neglect and seeming forgetfulness of God's grace to him. But then God asks Jonah a question. This is a marker of his patience in confronting sinners, calling them to examine themselves. In verse 4, God says to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? It's like he's saying, Jonah, my dear child, is this really the right response that you need to have towards other fallen image bearers? Is it right to be angry that, that the same grace and mercy that was shown you is withheld from others? Do you do well to be angry? How healthy, spiritually speaking, is this for you? I stumbled across a story or uh, illustration online that I thought seemed fitting here. It's about a rich man and a rabbi, uh, but the thrust of the story really kind of had to do in its original intent with the power and the lust for money um, but let's see how else we can spin this tale as it fits this message this morning. One day, a certain old rich man of a, a miserable disposition visited a rabbi who took the rich man by the hand and led him to a window. Look out there, he said. The rich man looked into the street. What do you see? asked the rabbi. I see men, women, and children, answered the rich man. Again, the rabbi took him by the hands and this time led him to a mirror. Now what do you see? Now I see myself, the rich man replied. Then the rabbi said, Behold, in the window there is glass. 
and in the mirror there is glass, but the glass of the mirror is covered with a little silver. And no sooner is the silver added than you cease to see others, but you see only yourself. With that in mind, we can think that, you know, money isn't evil. It is a gift given to us by God as a resource to be used for good things. But it can be abused as it is in this story. That's what the silver was indicating. Grace is a precious gift that is given to us. And yet sometimes we hoard it, we abuse it, we want it for ourselves only, turning it away from others and concentrating on me, me, me. This is forgetting the true effect of grace upon us. Grace was never meant to just be some kind of inverse spiritual thing that we cozy up with and not let it out for others to experience. We do well to remember the threefold adage of the Heidelberg Catechism and what it encourages. Guilt, grace, and then gratitude because of that grace. Do you turn grace back on yourself without showing it to others? It's a natural inclination to hoard things for ourselves. Just think of little children and their toys, gifts from mom and dad. Uh, For me, and never for you, sister, or you, brother, we forget grace, we forget to display it to a watching world, and we end up like Jonah. But God is still God, and God does not forget grace, and he reminds us of it. From verses 5 through 11, we see how God reminds Jonah of grace, and the context is set when Jonah makes a place for himself outside the city of Nineveh, stubbornly hopeful, we could say, that God's judgment will still prevail against Nineveh, but he knows it won't happen. Surely these 40 days are up by now. God gave Nineveh 40 days to repent. God's anger has relented against the Ninevites, and still Jonah just, you know, harumphs out of the city, marches out there, spiritually crossing his fingers that something could still happen, but it won't. Why? Because of grace. God begins to remind Jonah of what grace is. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant overnight too and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. This is probably a castor oil plant. If you ever look at these pictures of these things on on Google or whatever, they have like 6 to 18 inch leaves that are just huge. So we can understand how Jonah was um, exceedingly glad, it says, because of this plant. Now, again, this uh, Hebrew word that I mentioned before, ra'ah, is at play here. It means either discomfort or evil, an earlier displease. God relented of disaster, right, against the Ninevites in chapter 3, ra'ah, and Jonah was exceedingly displeased, ra'ah. In verse 6, it is Jonah himself who is rescued from so-called disaster and discomfort, ra'ah, but now... He is exceedingly glad 
In other words, Jonah is undergoing similar circumstances as the Ninevites, that is, being delivered from discomfort, being delivered by a gracious God, but his response turns a complete 180. Anger at the Ninevites' salvation, but joy in his. Jonah, again, is hoarding grace. Verses 7 through 8. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. We all know heat. We all know nasty humidity. Uh, This is a nasty desert heat blowing upon Jonah, almost as if he's in a baking oven. All appointed by God just as he appointed the plant, just as he appointed the fish in chapter 2. Now you would think, because of the current circumstances that Jonah finds himself in, pleasant shade versus dry heat, you think that would have alerted Jonah to the grace and mercy that was just shown him in the shade of the plant. But what does he say instead? Verse 8 again. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. One theologian puts it this way. Earlier, Jonah had wanted to die because of his anger that the Ninevites had been delivered from their disaster. Now he wants to die because of his anger for not being delivered from his own disaster. Somehow he remains convinced he deserves deliverance from disaster, but others do not. That his evil deserves forgiveness while the evil of others deserves judgment. And God continues to remain patient with Jonah here. He asks him another question. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? To which Jonah responds, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. As God questioned Jonah's reasons for being angry with the Ninevites' salvation, He now questions Jonah's reasons for being angry at the death of a plant. (laughs) Shows you where Jonah's priorities are. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The life of this plant meant more to Jonah than anything else. And so God proceeds to compare Jonah's reaction to the plant with his reaction to the salvation of Nineveh. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The only book of the Bible, by the way, that ends with a question. He's teaching and reminding Jonah and us about grace here. Those who do not know their right hand from their left can be described as those who have lost their moral compass and will soon lose their way and become hopelessly lost. And so God's pity, his heart is drawn out to these kinds of people, drawn out by the moral impoverishment of the denizens of Nineveh. So to to sum up God's reminding Jonah of grace here, 
God's providing the shade of the plant for Jonah and then taking it away from him demonstrates that he is the God who gives and takes away, and he bestows grace upon those he wishes. God's gracing Jonah with plant shade and then subsequently removing it exposed Jonah's flawed view of grace. He was obsessed with that grace bestowed upon him from plant shade of all things, but did not reciprocate any of this God-given grace to flesh and blood that so desperately needs to be saved. Lives that were lost in darkness. The Ninevites were too far gone as a people, leaking sin left, right, and center. There is no way they could be saved. Your grace is sufficient for me, but not for them. Jonah madly underestimates the grace of God to outsiders. But don't we as well? We think of those in our midst, friends or family members maybe, where we underestimate the potential there that they may be saved someday. We hear them mock the God we love, and we hate them for it. There's a famous short but powerful illustration out there. It goes like this. An atheist said, if there was a God, may he prove himself by striking me dead right now. Nothing happened. You see, there is no God. Another responded, you've only proved that he is a gracious God. As God showed us compassion, we should mirror that to others who are vastly different than us. You see, God has pity on all kinds of people. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires who all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And that really got brought to the fore when the dividing wall of hostility was torn down between the Jews and the Gentiles by the cross of Christ. You may recall in the book of Acts, Peter's vision on the rooftop of the house of Simon the Tanner. This is a vision filled with much symbolism, but it was meant to serve as God's commissioning of Peter to begin bringing the good news of the gospel to the Gentile world, to the Gentile nations, those apart from the ethnic Jewish community. Guess where that vision took place? Guess where Simon the Tanner lived? In a house by the sea, in a city called Joppa, the very place where Jonah fled to abandon his call and commission to bring good news to the Gentiles. Peter obeys the Spirit, and the first one he ministers to is a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, hearing the good news. And then taking up this divine task, Peter says to Cornelius, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. God shows no bias to any one particular group of people, 
whether it's based on their culture, the color of their skin, their education, etc. When it comes to sharing the gospel, we're tempted to just kind of list off a bunch of you know, external criteria that others might have to meet before we approach them with anything. Not so with God. God shows no partiality. We like to huddle with grace. We like to soak it in for ourselves, not squeezing it out like a sponge. We get comfortable in our own personal salvation. Heard someone once call it a vine-centered life, thinking of the plant that Jonah was under. Without telling others about Jesus, or at least just in being selective in who we share the good news of the gospel with. That's why being reminded of our sin and then being reminded of grace towards our sin is so important. Colin Smith writes, Grasping the effect of sin on the human soul helps us grow in the kind of compassion that reflects the compassionate heart of God. Remember, the God who saved you is one who is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah would rather have died than see Nineveh saved. Jesus, on the other hand, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he submitted to the will of his father and went to that cross to die. So that you who didn't know your left hand from your right would be saved. May we never say with Jonah, I would rather die. But look upon the one who did die and was raised and be reminded of his grace to his people. He is grace personified to us. May we then exemplify that to all around us who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. It's very important that we pray uh, of course, for the Spirit's work and help in this endeavor, that the cross of Jesus would be proclaimed to all without partiality. Many are ready to hear this good news. Don't forget grace so that it informs your witness to others. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Spirit continue to work in us, to stir our hearts and remind us of the grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ and his work for us, that he went to the cross and died, was raised and ascended, Lord, intercedes for us now. We see grace in all of this. May we be reminded of that, that we may then share this good news with those around us. Forgive us, Lord, when we fail to do so in this endeavor and in that forgiveness, Lord, we're just reminded once again of the grace that you show to your people. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.